Hello, everyone. This weekly class, which I've been giving now for many years, from 1982, which is now uh, over 36 years, almost 36 years, but time to time, and it's a pleasure and honor to give the class, and I've met so many wonderful people, and literally my life has been changed, and hopefully many others. From time to time, however, whether we like it or not, it's necessary to speak about events that are extremely painful and tear our hearts asunder, apart. But as they say, it's hard to speak, but it's harder to remain silent. And that is, of course, the massacre in Pittsburgh that happened this last Shabbat, this last Saturday, where a uh, Jew-hating gunman stormed the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and Squirrel Hill and murdered in cold blood 11 innocent Jewish men and women. And would have done a lot more, God forbid, had he not been stopped. An event that has mortified us all, the entire nation. They say it's the single worst anti-Semitic event in American history. And that's what I'm going to speak about. As I said, we have to speak about it because it's happened. And as painful as it is, we cannot ignore it. And the big question, of course, is beyond the grief and beyond the <clears throat> emotions and beyond the, the sheer shock, how are we supposed to respond to this in a healthy way? What are we to think? What are we to do? The class is dedicated by the family Zechar, Zecher, I'm sorry, family Zecher, in honor of their son's birthday on the 23rd of Cheshvan, Chai Eliad Yosef. May you learn with the greats and grow with the learners. And of all classes, this is an unbelievable honor. Unbelievable may not be the right word, but it's a tremendous honor to be able to dedicate the words that I'll try to share that hopefully not just can console us and process in some way what has happened, but also above all, to come away with a game plan. Something the Jewish people have unfortunately mastered the art to do, even through the harshest of circumstances. So, the questions are many. We have questions to God, how God allows innocent people like that to suffer and to die in such a way. What, is, what can we do about anti-Semitism in general? What can we do about hatred? What should be our response, and as I said, a healthy response to an event like this? And obviously, I am not going into any politics here, which of course is also completely disgusting and despicable, frankly, to see any politics connected with this. I don't care from which side of the aisle. We're talking about lives, talking about families, talking about people's entire trajectory just torn away and what they were sitting in prayer. Mostly middle-aged and elderly Jews in a prayer service, in a place that's supposed to be protected, a place one should not ever defile, 
<clears throat> and yet this has happened. As I mentioned, they say it's the worst event of anti-Semitic event in the United States in the history of America, which itself says much. Because what that tells us is that um, America has been a miraculous haven for the Jewish people, for all people, for all religions, but especially for the Jews who suffered and were persecuted so in Europe and in the Middle Ages and the Early Ages. Whenever you turn, you go all the way back to Egypt, all the way back to Abraham, a history of persecution, of expulsion, of genocides, one form of another, whether the Egyptian Empire or the Assyrian Empire or the Babylonian Empire or the Greek and Roman and, uh, and Syrian Empire, the Roman Empire, you name it. Throughout the Middle Ages, the Crusades, the, pogr- the, the Inquisition, the pogroms, and of course the Holocaust in our own 20th century. Anti-Semitism has been with us for a long time. There's even a verse that speaks about Jacob and Esau, the two twin, the twin brothers, who struggled even from their mother in their mother's womb, which we'll read about next week. And what does it say? Ach, of the Yaakov, that Esau hates Jacob. So this is not the place to analyze the historical, theological, and spiritual roots of anti-Semitism, even though I will touch upon it. It's above all, really, to share, because unfortunately when there's loss and there's pain, it has a tendency to bring us together. You know, when things are going well, very often we become more complacent and it's easier for us to ignore each other. But here you suddenly say, you know, any one of us could have been there, just like it was at the Holocaust. Killed only the, the, the gunman was yelling, Kill all the Jews. I want to kill all the Jews. So we're here to talk about that mutual emotional connection we have as Jews, as human beings. Because frankly, this is a human issue, not just a Jewish issue. As we all know, you look at any country, in any nation, in any community that persecuted Jews and they're persecuting each other as well. I also find it quite, I don't know what the word for it is, extraordinary, amazing actually, that all the people who treated this murderer were Jewish, as has already been interviewed and reported. They had the presence, the humanity, the angelic humanity, not only not to reciprocate, not only not to ignore, but to do whatever they had to be medically responsible to help this person in his, with his wounds and his uh, health situation. Would he have done the same for them if he was a doctor? So you, some will say, yes, it's somewhat a little naive and you can't always be so nice. No, but there's a big lesson in this, which we're going to talk about as well. So I want to begin, obviously, with the most important thing, which is our hearts go out to the people, the souls that have passed on, to their families, to the community, to their loved ones. And we say the, cl- the blessing and the prayer, 
that God should console you among all the mourners and grievers of Zion and Jerusalem. This is the classic, the traditional, the, the traditional statement we make when we do a shiva call and we console. And this itself can be analyzed, the meaning of it. Because the word for God that's used here is hamokim, the space. God has space. Because the space has been left empty now. In this case, 11 spaces. So the space of the divine should fill the space that was left a void in this material world. The souls live on. We know that. We feel that. But the bodies are not here. The soul of the body is not here. That's why it's such a great loss. So our hearts go out. Our prayers go out. We try to gather strength. Try to give strength. And that is the most important thing. It's not important even to answer questions. Remember, a question and answer is a very limited scope, a very limited parameter. The most brilliant mind cannot speak to a bleeding and crying heart. And we shouldn't even attempt to. All the philosophical and theological and uh, mystical and whatever you want to call it, responses are simply inadequate. As one Rebbe once told a chassid who suffered greatly a tragedy, he said to him, I have no answers for you, but I can cry with you. And the crying with you actually gives, each, gives strength because it means we can hold each other's hands, we can empathize, we can console each other. There's strength in that. No one understands the mystery of it, but there's strength when you know that you have others near you. Now, they don't make the pain less, nor do they provide any resolution or any direction or any question or any answers. But there's a strength. They're there. It's like they help lift you up. They help buffer. No one should ever know of this, but when you sit Shiva, as I have done for my father, almost for 13 and a half years ago, there's something about it. I, by the visual that comes to me was like a wounded animal, as you are when you are sitting Shiva. Very fragile, very raw. And the people that come see you, it's not what they say. They buffer. It's like, like cotton. I felt like, like lift you up in a way they just carry you. And you feel buffered. You feel like cushioned from the blow. So it's not quite as sharp, but it's still there. They distract you even in a certain way, but in a good way. So we have that strength to give that strength to each other. And it also brings out the best in us because we have to then leave our own selfish little self-interest world and think about another. I remember the day when we came from back from the funeral, from my father's funeral. So who was there to greet us? Most people stay away from the first day. Who was there to greet us? All young people who lost a parent, a father especially, were there. Because they went through the fire and they just could stand there with their credibility. They didn't have to say anything. They were there. I remember a group of them, the people who had lost, they wasn't planned, they just gravitated. Because there's something that happens when the door opens and a soul returns to its maker. That's even when it's in a natural way. Natural, as in natural meaning natural death or through an illness. And that brings out something about our, if we allow it, it brings our hearts and souls together. Now, you can magnify that many times over when you're dealing with a situation where a brutal attack, 
suddenly, out of nowhere, on a, a nice, peaceful Shabbat morning, people coming to pray, to speak to their God. And when their lives are ripped away, then it's not just yet another loss, which is also quite significant, but it has in it a completely different dimension. And the questions are so much more, and therefore the consolation that's needed is so much more as well. And that's what we do. So the first thing is simply to empathize, to feel, get away from your own little comfort zone, and be, recognize and be compassionate and feel there's, other, there's pain in this world. And even if it's not direct to our family member or to a uh, community member, we're all one. All seven and a half billion of us are one because it's one that we are all descendants from one ancestor, Adam and Eve, from one couple. And, they're the, and we are all created in a divine image. And we're all equal children of God's. And especially for the Jewish community, because this was specifically targeting a Jew, not just targeting a person. That makes it even stronger and it brings, elicits all the painful memories of terrorist attacks in Israel and of the suffering that we have endured, as I mentioned, in the last centuries and millennia. But we don't stop with what I've just said. That's the first step. So what is our reaction Our reaction is just as God's reaction was when the ten martyrs were killed brutally by the Romans. As we say, as we recollect it in Yom Kippur prayers, and and when the angels and Moses come to God and say, is this Torah and is this its reward? And God responds, be silent. That's what arose in my thought. Silence. As Aaron was silent when his children were taken from him. And as every great man and woman was silent when they suffered unspeakable loss. Now, silence is not just a loss of words. Silence is the honoring, the respect, the dignity of something that we cannot fathom, that's beyond us. And the only thing we're left is with silence. So it's actually a sacred silence. As one of the great rabbis who survived the Holocaust said, and lost his family there, even if someone wanted, to, even if God wanted to come with an answer to explain to me why, I wouldn't want to hear. Because silence is the only true response. It also honors it, and it also allows us to experience the pain. As they say, the only way out is through. Not avoiding it, not trying to explain it away, not giving excuses. That, above all, has to be the first reaction. And that itself is a catharsis. That itself is healing. Because you're not denying the reality. You're recognizing its awesome mystery. Even beyond mystery, its awesome tragedy. And you recognize that there's the biggest secrets of life are beyond us. And we do not know God's ways without at all taking away from the culpability and responsibility of the brutal killer and to being brought to justice and do everything necessary to to find justice here. We say that as well. But that focus is on the authorities and on those that are responsible for that. And we say, Hashem yinkum damam, God should avenge their blood. But what do we do beyond the silence? What do we do beyond the grief? That's step number one. 
Step number two, and this is a, a, I would say, indispensable lesson to all of life. It comes to tragedy like this for sure, but even the smaller setbacks in our lives. And that's how we deal with this, this intense and overwhelming grief and negativity that has essentially toxified the community of Pittsburgh and the entire nation and the entire world. What do we do with all this negative stuff? There's the anger, there's the grief, there's the shock, there's the pain, if you allow yourself to feel it all. So, sadly, but also thankfully, we have thousands of years of history. And we've developed, and I specifically mean the Jewish people have developed, not just a resilience, but actually tools and methods that help get through it. It doesn't minimize the the loss, and it doesn't minimize the pain, but getting through it. Viktor Frankl, his entire psychology, logotherapy, which he tested and proved in, during the Holocaust and saying that those, this man search for meaning, man search for meaning, that those who search for meaning and have meaning in life were able to endure more. Not they suffer less, but they have endured more because they have more diversity in their lives and therefore don't put all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. And more importantly, they have something transcendent. So here is where transcendence comes into the situation. I've talked about many times about transcendence in a positive way. That you cannot just live a life of survival. A human being, a healthy human being, needs some form of transcendence. Because the soul, like a flame flickers, is restless. It's always seeking something beyond. To just satisfy yourself with instant gratification, with material success, and carnal pleasures etc., is not satisfying and not ultimately living up to fulfilling and realizing a human being's power and potential. Because we have a soul, and the soul looks upward and seeks transcendence. That is in all times. When it comes to loss and tragedy, transcendence takes on a whole new meaning and a whole new importance. Not only is it a necessity it becomes an absolute lifesaver. The truth is, it's always a lifesaver for those that understand transcendence. Those a human being is not alive. You're not alive if you're not transcending. But when it comes to grief, what else is there left? We don't have anything to hold on to except the transcendent. We have nothing left but the soul. So if we were to succumb to the rules of mortality and to the rules of this material world that everything that begins ends, and everything in life ages, erodes, deteriorates, and then perishes, then you're part of the rules of nature, and that's reality. However, we know, not just believe, we know that there's something going on that is ethereal, something that is eternal, something that's immortal, and that is the soul. And that the soul was here before we were born and the soul continues on a journey after we leave this world. And when we're blessed, we have long and healthy life. And until Mashiach comes, until the future, we live the 120 years or whatever years we're blessed with. But when our lives are brutally 
ended by such a bestial attack, then we need even more that extent, uh, appreciation of transcendence because that is what ultimately lifts us up and doesn't allow us to become victims and to become products of the pain and the grief. And that's what the Jewish people discovered over the years. In the classic verse, immortal words, the beginning of Exodus, which describes the terrible bondage and exile and suffering and genocide of the Jewish people at the hands of the Egyptians. Literally, the first documented, institutionalized actions of inhumanity from man to man. So there's a verse that says, Kashayano Esam, as the Egyptians oppressed them, the Jewish people, as they were oppressed in direct proportion to that, they thrived and they flourished. Which seems odd. You'd think that pain, suffering, oppression should weaken the resolve, should weaken a person's morale and spirit and even willpower to grow, to, to move on. No, but it did the exact opposite. It brought out their deepest strengths and made them grow in ways they could never have grown without, without it. Because that's what pain and suffering and grief does. It brings the best out of you or the worst out of you. It can destroy, demoralize, and destroy a person. And they become bitter and angry, lose their willpower, lose their interest, lose their will to live, as we've sadly and unfortunately seen. Not judging anyone. Or it forces you to dig deeper because you cannot rely on your regular resources because they're not enough. So it forces you to dig deeper and find deeper levels of transcendence and connection to the souls of those that are loved ones or our family or community or even strangers, but people who we connect and identify with or should connect and identify with. Through a spiritual connection, and that connection becomes far stronger, and therefore we become stronger in the process. And those are the two, two options. There is no third option. Yeah, there's a third option to go into denial, ignore it all. But you're going to end up having to come to one of these two options. And of course we choose option two. Actually, I should call it option one. But I spell it out as option two. So therefore, a situation like this compels us to become more introspective, to become more soul-searching, and look inside our hearts and souls, and find the transcendence within our lives. And only that will do honor. Not justify, but do honor to the souls that have been torn away from us. Because now they would have lived on and done good deeds and prayed and done other things that we hear such unbelievable, wonderful mitzvahs and nobility and acts of grace from these individuals. So now, who will do that in this world? We. Because we connect on that transcendent level, and we perpetuate that legacy. So what we do in times of darkness, in times of grief, we do the exact opposite. What we do is, we harness all that negative energy toward a positive direction. 
because it's a lot of energy. Negative energy is also energy. In some ways, it's even more powerful than positive energy. But it could either consume you or it can propel you to new and unprecedented heights. Though I chose not to be philosophical this, in this discussion here, but I do feel, and I'll try to convey it in a personal way, the need to go a little deeper into this, because it's vital at times, not that we necessarily need it, it's vital at times to understand and dissect the anatomy, the heart of darkness, the anatomy of evil. And this by no means is justification in trying to understand. A person went in, cold-bloodedly killed people, is responsible, should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, and whatever the law prescribes should be done. But nevertheless, the question that begs is, how is it possible? How is it possible there can be acts of hatred with human beings literally turning on fellow man? In this case, with virulent anti-Semitic feelings. Where does it come from? Is, is there such a thing as a person born a hater? A person born an anti-Semite? Is it in the blood? I mentioned before, Esau hates Jacob. There it sounds like it's inherent. So what's going on here? Can we say that about certain individuals? And not that it justifies and says, okay, they don't have free will. They have free will to control it. You know, we all have tendencies. So I want to talk about that a bit more. If nothing else, simply to pacify my own curiosity, or more than curiosity, to understand that anatomy, because I believe when you understand it, you can then even tap you can tap even deeper into that resource and turn it into something positive. So the question, of course, is asked, and I, let me qualify again. This in no way replaces or should replace the, everything I've said till now, the empathy, the love, the crying together, the companionship, the camaraderie, the unity that we all have to experience. But let us say, once that is clearly and done in the most proper way, and it continues to be done, and we can step back a bit. What is going on here? How could a good God who created a, a world without any smidgen of negative or evil, how can from there emerge a human being that ultimately will kill another human being in cold blood? How can one human being be unjust to another? The big question, not just the question how a good God allows, how good people, why a good God will allow good people to, why bad things happen to good people, and why God allows that. But even more than that, not just to the good people, why God allow, how's, how's, it, how's it even evolve? Something that's utterly good, how does that turn into something that's bad? To put it in more simple terms, every child born is born, as I said, in the divine image. It's a gift of God. Life is a gift of God. God sends a soul to this world that enters the body of every human being. That soul, we know, is a piece of the divine, in some way a spark of the divine. So how does something that is a divine spark suddenly become a criminal? Suddenly, maybe not suddenly. 
So we know there are different things that can happen. The soul goes undercover, so to speak. That spark goes undercover, and people have free will. And they may be a result of different childhood experiences, and they lose their conscience. They can lose their soul, in a way. Lose the connection to the soul, the conscious connection. And do things that are completely antithetical to the divine and the divine purpose. We were given free will. And yet, we still need to understand how, that, how the process works. What are the mechanics of that? As I said again, this is not just some type of um, exercise, theoretical, abstract exercise in philosophy, but as you'll see, it's relevant to our discussion here and can help us. So briefly, briefly, especially using the words of the great mystic Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Arizal, the holy Arizal, elaborates and introduces the Sayyid HaTzimtzum, the secret of the Tzimtzum, the concealment of the divine in existence. An utter concealment, Tzimtzum utterly, that the divine presence was absolutely the only consciousness that exists, and that was then concealed. Not from the divine perspective, but from our perspective. Allowing space, I mentioned space before, allowing space for an independent ego, an independent consciousness to emerge, because that's the whole purpose of creation. There should be an independent entity. But independence comes with a price. Independence means that we can fall. Just like your child, to learn to walk, you can't hold your child all the time. You need to release. You need restraint. And that's way the child learns to walk on its own. But it also can fall until it learns to walk. An analogy given to, for this, one of the great mystics, the Magad of Mizrich, of Dov Ber of Mizrich, is the analogy of a parent concealing him or herself, her, herself from a child. In order for the child to demonstrate its ingenuity to find its parent. But the concealment is so well done that it's possible the child stops looking after a while. Looks and looks and looks and doesn't find. In the words of my Rebbe, once I'm hearing from him, searched on a Sunday, searched on a Monday, searched on a Tuesday. How much more can we search? And the child gives up. That's where the concealment turns into the first glimpse or the first glimmer of something negative. Because the concealment itself is in order to bring out our independence, to bring out our ingenuity, to bring out our strengths and resources to overcome that concealment. But as soon as you give the concealment credibility and credence and you give up or you say it's too much for me, then the concealment becomes a force that can turn into, with, in time and with evolution, to something really terrible. Because then you give up and then what do you do? You start writing a new narrative. The narrative is now, no, no concealment. This is my life. And what happens then? You start building a life based on a false or distorted reality, the reality of darkness. And darkness becomes the default state to the point you don't even think it's dark. You think it's regular life. But the whole thing is predicated, the whole thing is based on a concealment that hid the divine. Imagine that the hand hides from the glove and then at some point you start saying, you know what, there is no hand, there's only a glove. So it's like the whole thing is turned inside out and you forget there's an inside. We, put more, we give more credence to the peel 
than to the fruit within. And that ultimately can lead a person to do things. First are small crimes, small injustices, small ways to hurt each other or hurt yourself. And then that can lead to worse. So essentially, evil acts. Evil acts are a result of a concealment that was misunderstood initially and then ignored and then created a new narrative, a new reality, all due to the concealment, but you no longer think it's a concealment. So it's actually the absence of good that creates a breeding ground for the possibility of evil. And evil, however, is not perpetrated by the concealment itself. It's perpetrated by the person's attitude and perspective on the concealment. They don't longer see it as divine concealment. They see it as the reality. This is my reality. My reality is I'm here to take care of myself. The reality, pre-symptom, meaning the divine consciousness is one that everything in existence is, is created by the divine. Everything has a role to play. And it's all one united like one major musical symphony with each musical note necessary and indispensable and each one complementing the other. And so too the human race, each of us, it would be incapable with that type of consciousness to hurt each other because the other is a part of you. Is it possible for the right arm to hit the left arm? For the right leg to strike the, le- the, the, right leg to strike the left leg? Or any other part of the body to turn on itself? That's considered a horrible disease, those autoimmune diseases. So a body works in, a, in harmony, harmony within diversity. But if it loses sight of that perspective and it sees the concealment as reality, so concealment means me and you, we're not connected. I'm not your brother, you're not my sister. We're not part of one organism. As a matter of fact, I think you're stealing my resources. As a matter of fact, I think you're the killer of my God. A Christ killer. As a matter of fact, we're talking about false facts, but facts now in this new perspective, you are my enemy. Whatever reason you think, whether you have any justification, even if there's I'm not, justification, I don't want to use the word justification. And you suddenly become the toxin. As the Nazis said, as repeated last week, a few weeks ago, by another anti-Semite, like termites, not Semites, termites. It's exactly the examples that the, the, the Nazis did through their propaganda, insects that need to be eliminated. And what did they do? They used exactly that. They used extermination. They used gas that you would use to exterminate your home of rodents or other insects or other uh, disturbing creatures, uh, disturbing um, um, insects, I don't have another word. Like a mosquito. Spray. How can you justify such a thinking? It all has a root. The root is, if there was no concealment in the first place, you never could come to that. So the concealment is the purpose is to reveal. But then, if you allow yourself to create your own reality that I am God, and I am my me, and others can be my enemy then, of course, it's not just a distortion, it's a complete desecration of the purpose of existence itself. But I want to make sure to emphasize that this is all hatred and all bigotry and all prejudice. But with anti-Semitism, it takes on a different level. 
It's not just another form of bigotry, as we see in history. Briefly, at its root, the Asa of Jacob battle that we'll read about next week, as I said, reflects two archetypes. The archetype of a material world that worships concealment, seeing a spiritual world that worships unity and the divine as its enemy. Because anyone who lives in the concealment says, not concealment, this is reality. And someone says, it's not reality, we're living in the dark. That person becomes an enemy. Kill the witness. They're witness to the events that happened pre the symptom. They can tell us about another reality. No, that's a threat to society. They don't respect us. They want to be different. And that's what Haman said and Hitler said and every other persecutor said. Haman says, There's this one nation that spread around your, all your, your empire. Spread among all your nations. But the same shenus and their faith, their religion is different. From all other nations. They stand out like a sore thumb. They're different. They refuse to bow to our culture and to me and to what we represent. We need to eradicate them. And Hitler said a similar thing when you read his obscene works. And he unfortunately, Haman was reversed and Purim came. And he unfortunately did kill six million with the Nazis all complicit in it. Every form of anti-Semitism has that type of element. Now, I'm not suggesting this killer even was aware of this. He may have been the culture, brainwashed from young age, fed whatever he was fed, and then maybe a social misfit, maybe following the social media where everybody can voice their hatred and their racial um, prejudices, especially against Jews. I'm not going to get it. It's not really relevant to us how he became who he became, how he ended up doing what he did. What is relevant is that at the core, whether he knew it or not, is the war of matter versus spirit. And when matter kills spirit, what kind of tragedy? Not only are you not aware that it's concealment, not only are you not aware that there's a purpose to reverse the concealment and turn it into revelation and blessing, you actually kill the light, the darkness killing the light. And then it becomes the level that is heinous, murderous, brutal, and whatever other word, adjective that you can add to what we've witnessed. But what is the point of all of this? The point of it that in the heart of darkness lies a deep concealment. So how do you battle that? Obviously, we do on the ostensible level, like in anything. Think in medicine. You deal with the symptoms, but then you want to get to the root. So you need to have the band-aids and the painkillers, and you have to stop the bleeding, but you have to get to the root. So here the same. On a symptomatic level, we have to do everything possible, first of all, to bring them to justice. Secondly, any deterrent possible that should never be another, God forbid, act like this. Whether it's through security, whether it's through measures of education, fighting hatred at every possible way, intolerance, zero tolerance of such behavior, or even language and speech. Yes, we have freedom of speech, I understand. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't educate our children to exercise freedom of speech only for good things. So we have to do everything possible on that level. And if we have to go to war, we go to war. But what about the root? What do we do? Not of all of us are in law enforcement. Not, 
So what we have to do are several things which I'm going to enumerate now based on. And I'll begin with what I just, what I just concluded about the concealment. What we have to do is fight the concealment in your own life. Look at your life. Do you see yourself as separate and apart from everyone around you? I understand that may not be evil per se, but it's a result of the concealment. Do something to connect with someone else. Charitable act. Volunteer, go together and do a mitzvah together. Go visit the sick. Do something positive. Join. We need to fight the concealment in every possible way because that's the root of all these issues. Bring godliness into your life. Awareness that there's a higher purpose. It's not just about you. Teach it to your children in the morning. Moda'ani, we say, thank you for returning my soul to me. Focus, refocus and recalibrate your life to the purpose of it all, the transcendence. That's how we battle the concealment. So you battle darkness through light. That's obvious. But it goes deeper than that. You battle darkness through light because that's the way you actually diffuse and untangle and recreate the symptom from its root by transforming it. Now I know this sounds, one second, we're dealing here with killings and murders. It's only got this philosophical, no, but I'm talking here, not the symptoms, I'm getting to the root, the lessons to us. Maimonides says that when we experience a catastrophe in the community, we cannot be callous and cruel and say it just happened, an accident. We have to look, be introspective, look into our hearts and souls, what we can do to remedy the situation. So the remedy on the surface level and there's remedy on the root level. But the root level goes further. It's an education of ourselves and our children. And remember, when you educate yourself and your children, that becomes a ripple effect. And any one of us who has the capacity and the ability to educate others, and we all have our sphere of influence, the people we reach out to, the people we speak to, even here, people constantly t- wringing their hands and tearing their hair out, of the, hair out of their heads about what happened here. We all experience that grief, but add something. Let's do something about it. What do we do? We need to educate. We need to educate about the inherent unity that we all have with God and that we have a morality, an absolute ethical morality that we have to answer to God. Yes, we have free will. And yes, we have freedom of speech. That doesn't mean you have to exercise it in the worst possible way. So an education that we answer to a higher authority. There's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. Introduce a mo- another point. Introduce a moment of silence in our schools with a purpose not to infringe on separation of church and state. The purpose of children, teachers, educators to think there's something before we start the day we answer to someone greater. Will that prevent automatically all such acts? I'm not naive to say that. But could it be a measure that could help, especially in the long term? Absolutely. Among other measures as well. You still lock your doors, you still need protection, you still need security. I'm not dismissing that. But to the ultimate root, the long term, is a complete re-education in our school systems. You know, you hear the talk that people say, the rhetoric... The rhetoric of the politicians. I'm not even going to mention names because it's on all sides. Everyone blames the other side. What about with rhetoric? What about the climate in which we live? Rhetoric. Open up any television. Open, go to a film movie. Go online. Watch what's streaming. You tell me the level of violence 
guns used, the lack of life sanctity, constantly streaming. Is that rhetoric? It's more than rhetoric. It's the visualization and the imagery that is, is, in, in, is inundating our impressionable children's minds and adult minds. Will everyone act on it just because there's a video game that, you, that, that shooting or whatever it is that people do as a game, that means that everyone's going to become a killer? Obviously not. I'm not even tracing it directly, but you talk about a climate, to include everything in the climate. And that's rarely spoken about because everything is politicized and the media included. You want to change the climate. I remember when I spoke about Me Too movement and the same thing with other different uh, movements that have... Think about the bigger picture, not just let's eliminate abuse. Let's create a climate of sanctity of relationships, a sanctity of life, a sanctity of everything around us. I remember um, in Columbine tragedy when the few kids... Students turned on their own. And they were completely normal. Then they killed themselves in Colorado. And what did we learn from that? That there's no sanctity to life, even to your own life. So these are things that have to be inculcated and infused into our society in a loving way. Not No one has to impose it. We should willingly embrace this. And there's much more that can be done. I'm just listing a few things that come to mind. But it's all rooted in what I was saying because when you understand the root of things, that's how you uproot it at its source. Now, obviously, there has to be an education, which, thank God, the Holocaust studies and others that help understand what human beings can do, which is the ultimate goal. Not just to tell us what happened, but if you don't remember it, you can repeat it. But even deeper than that, not just to show how bad people can be to people. We don't have to wait for a Holocaust to happen. But even on subtle levels, gratitude, saying thank you, honoring parents, honoring each other. Instead of dog eats dog, and if I have to make a little money, I can do it on your back, and I'll basically stab you in the back, even if you're my best friend, because I need to climb the ladder, the corporate ladder. An education of sensitivity, the sanctity of life, and that we're all one, and we all need each other. That's at the root of the tzimtzum. You You remedy it there, automatically you'll be preventing preventive medicine of so many different ails and maladies. I understand that will take time. That's why we also have to have short-term solutions. But why shouldn't we work on long-term and short-term at the same time, simultaneously? And all of us have to join in that. What's going to happen here is time will pass. And after the politicians and the media and everyone who's taken advantage of these situations, you know, a new news cycle New events, next week is a midterm election, and then other things. It'll be forgotten, except by the people who were lost and by their families. But there are people who will remember. You know who will remember? Those that are not consumed themselves and don't just gravitate back to their own comfort zones and lives. They remember. Not just remember the grief. They'll remember because they use this as a catalyst. This darkness, this other, the, other, the most obscene and horrible results of a tremendous concealment to turn this into a force for good and that good never goes away and that's when we honor these souls in a way that they deserve not just these few weeks where people pay tribute and lip service or even more than that and i commend that but in time which is why this week's chapter in the torah chayasara what is it the life of sarah when do you know she's alive after she passes away 
And the more time passes, the more you know she's alive because she's still impacting us. So I would like to say that in months from now, in years from now, we should be able to say, I remember the events that happened. That October, that dark October, Saturday morning, 2018, in Squirrel Hill. Not that I remember only the loss. I remember because I built institutions. I built good. I built new channels of light as a result of what that woke me up to do. That's what you want to be able to say. And whose honor? In the honor of these 11 martyrs, these 11 Kedoshim that were killed simply because they were Jewish. And then the greatest anti-Semitic act in American history becomes also the greatest act that was turned into the greatest force for good. That's how we have to look at it. And that's what the Jewish people contributed to humanity. Because you could look at the Jews and see this living example how we did this, not once, not twice, again and again and again throughout history. And that's why we stand, because the grief, the losses, the deaths, the genocide did not destroy us. It made us stronger. As I said, the more they were oppressed, the stronger they got. If oppression destroys you, then of course it doesn't live on. But if oppression feeds you, and not that we are dependent on it, God forbid. We've suffered, but we have not become sufferers. It feeds our transcendence. Then what is immortalized is a legacy of good, of compassion, of social justice, and everything that Abraham pioneered and the Jewish people brought to this world. So when you look at those doctors and nurses that treated this man, yeah, it sounds like very nice people. It's much deeper than that. Because that's darkness that's trying to vanquish light and trying to not recognize that the light that's concealed is still light that's waiting to be revealed. How does the light respond? No, 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 I'm not fighting darkness with darkness. I fight light. I bring my light, and even you will benefit from it. That's what the Jewish people do. That doesn't mean that this person shouldn't be, as I said, prosecuted to the fullest extent. But right now, you need to be treated, we'll treat you. And we'll be humane. Because it's not a personal thing. Even though we all are extremely angry, but above all, our commitment, you know, are we taking our anger? Not in vengeance. Our vengeance is building stronger families, building a stronger legacy, bringing more good into this world, bringing more light into this world. That's our response. You know, my heart breaks when you think about it. Sometimes even difficult to think. You think of the names, you look at their faces, what happened to their lives. You know, as I said, a nice, beautiful Shabbos morning, like they always went to synagogue. You know, it just... But you have to take the tears and you have to turn them into growth. Like tears. What do the drops of water do? They can just fall to the sideway, waste, or they can become seeds of growth. You know, your tears, if they fall on the ground, they can make things grow. Hazed and Bedima, those that sow with tears, will reap with joy. So may they souls be a tribute to us all. May they find their place near God. 
because only God can really console them for what has happened to them. May their families be consoled. May our tears turn into growth. And that's a true commitment. And I tell you, it's very, time will pass, and then we will forget. It's one of the saddest things. I always think about it. You know, major events happen right here, and then you come a few years later and you say, nobody's here, no more cameras, nobody's watching. But in this spot, something historical happened. That's how we have to look at this. Something historical happened in a very terrible way. And we have to turn it into something historical in a good way that overshadows, the goodness is so powerful, it overshadows that darkness and proves that it's symptom. We will not surrender to it. We will not succumb to it. On the contrary, we will reveal the deepest light. And the darker it is, the more catalyst, the more springboard it will be for even a greater light. Now, God bless each of us, especially the families there, and each of us and all of us to hold on to the positive message and not forget it. I'll do my part by adding certain activities, certain good deeds. This week we dedicated completely to this theme, not just because it's in everyone's minds, because I really believe we need to leave a legacy here. We need to show a response that when time will pass and our children will look back, they say, ah, here's how they responded. And here's how I would respond to any setback I have. We should never ever know, not individually, not commu- collectively, not communally, of such more, so much more pain. God should already send the messianic age where we will no longer have, it says, lay there will no longer be the tears on our cheeks from pain and loss, and it will only be joy. Everyone be blessed. Please see us as a transcendent resource, connection that is here to help you, help ourselves, and all of us work together in creating the world that I described, a world of light that's stronger than any darkness. And that commitment is what carries us. So if you have any feedback or comments or thoughts or suggestions, please send them to us at MeaningfulLife.com is our website. And I want to bless everyone with a very blessed week, a week of joy, a week of life, a week of eternal life, Chayasara, for each and every one of us, and much nachas and joy and celebration and appreciation of the blessing and gifts that we have, our health, our families, our children, our work, and above all, our legacy of and commitment to our mission of making this world a divine home. Everyone be well and be blessed. Thank you so much.